for, well, let's see, we'll pray for Together Church. They're at Buffalo Bill Days right now, probably having their service. So we'll pray for them. Um, but Church in the Park is normal this coming Wednesday. We'll be at Parfit Park. Also, I want to start praying for what is called the Burgess House. The Burgess House is a house. It's kind of, anybody know what it is? Not, so it's so when we were there on Wednesday, those those people who were there were from the Burgess House, and it's a little apartment complex. I know nothing about it. Uh, I don't think it is. Um, I'm not really sure what it is. I know a lot of people who are homeless go there, and they're able to stay there a little bit. A um, uh, lot of uh, wickedness, I believe, goes on there from what I could tell and, and, uh, and stuff. So we just want to start praying for those people and just see where the Lord leads on that. Um, but I'm really excited to just minister to the people and uh, minister today. So getting God's word. So let's do it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much. Lord, we pray for the Together Church, Lord, that your word would go forth with power as they um, are there. Lord, that you would convict hearts. You'd convict the minds of the pastors there. And um, Lord, that the words of their mouths would be pleasing to you, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you'd be with us here today, that you would help us to examine ourselves in light of your word, to really commune with you, to hear from you. Lord, to hear from you not in some way that's outside of your word, but just to hear your word for what it says, and that you'd be the one to apply it to our lives, Lord. It wouldn't even be me, but it would be you. You are the one with all wisdom, all knowledge, all power, with wisdom about who we are, what we need to hear. You have knowledge of who we are, Lord. And um, so we trust you, and I trust that you're here this morning. You are a gracious God. You're the maker of the heavens and the earth. You're our maker, our creator. And Lord, we just want to submit to you, to worship you, because you're worthy, Lord, in your name. Amen. And Lord, we do pray for the Burgers House. I ask that you would begin today convicting hearts and minds of the people who live there, who stay there. And um, Lord, you'd give us an in so that we can minister. And I pray that many people would come to know you, would be born again, would repent of evil and of not believing you, of walking contrary to you, and begin walking with you, Lord. That you would do a great work there. In your name, amen. All right, so Psalm 7, verse 1 says, actually in the heading there, it says, A meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. So literally, a meditation of David is a Shagayon. A Shagayon. Now, nobody's 100% sure what a Shagayon is. It could be some kind of musical instrument. It could be some kind of musical device. Um, they believe that it might have the root word. I think it's Shageth in it. In Hebrew, which means to wander. To, like, wander around. And so some say that it's more like a meditation. David's mind's wandering upon these things. Um, or it could be that it's an, kind of an erratic music. You know, I think it's a heavy metal tune myself. I'm just kidding. Um, but it might be erratic music. Um, that's pretty much all we know. 
It says, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Now, there is no record of Cush, a Benjamite, reviling David, lying about David. We don't know who this is. Some have proposed um, with John Trapp, an English Puritan. He says, I rather understand what the Chaldee paraphrased. So there must be a paraphrase and from maybe it's the Babylonian Talmud, Talmud or something like that. Um, that this is Saul, King Saul. Cush is the area which is now modern-day Ethiopia. And it talks about Cush being, or the Ethiopian, um, being stubborn and hard-hearted. So maybe he's kind of it's like code speaking of Saul, saying he's hard-hearted. Saul was a Benjamite. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. So that could make sense. I think you have to kind of read into it. All we know, it's the words of Cush of Benjamite. So we'll just stick with that. But it's just kind of interesting to go through that kind of stuff. Um, Shimei was also a Benjamite. Shimei was the one who reviled David when he was um, coming out of Jerusalem after his son took over the kingdom and ran him out. But it's the words of Cush. And I just, what do you guys think the most prevalent form of persecution is? Throughout the ages, the most prevalent form of persecution against God's people. Them being, what's that? Slandering. Slandering. Words. A persecution using words, slandering people, reviling God's people, hating them, lying about them, bringing false charges against them. What, what, what happened to Jesus over and over again throughout his life? False testimonies of people, lies about him. This is Beelzebub. He does this work by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, they said. It all starts with words, and then it finally ended up with him being crucified on a cross. And the same goes in our day. Right now, the most prevalent form of persecution would be by words. People hating Christians, hating God's people, and they manifest that hatred with their words. Maybe they call you names. Maybe it's something trite like that. Maybe it's that they lie about you, slander you, try to ruin your reputation. They do something like that. But anyways, this is the psalm of the persecuted. This is the psalm of the persecuted. So we could, um, anytime we're under persecution, I think we go to this psalm and we could reflect on it and we could pray it. Okay? But I want you to remember Matthew 5, 10 through 12. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And notice Jesus says, when they revile you and persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Right? That's the evil words of persecution. What's our greatest asset against persecution? What's our greatest defense? Getting back at him, right? No. Just knocking out their teeth. 
Only if you have a badge. Right? Just kidding. Now, our greatest defense is prayer. It's running to our strong tower, our, our refuge, our strength. It's running to the Lord God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. Right? Who's going to judge the living and the dead. That is our number one place where we should go when we're persecuted. It's not to try to get back at people. It's not to do anything in our own strength, but to rely on the strength of the Lord. Look what David says. He says, O Lord, my God. That's literally, O Yahweh, my Elohim. Yahweh, my God. It's specific, right? Specific who he's talking to. In you I put my trust. Literally, in you I seek refuge. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces. And me is, usually when you see me in the Psalms, it could be translated my soul. My soul is the most literal rendition of that. Rending my soul in pieces, while there is none to deliver me. So notice David doesn't run to men. He doesn't run to his mighty men, right? David had these mighty men, and each one of them could slay an entire troop of soldiers. That's how mighty they were, how valiant in battle they were. He doesn't go to them for help. He doesn't go like Saul. What did Saul do? He went to a fortune teller to bring up Samuel because he didn't know what else to do. Instead, he goes to the Lord, his refuge, his refuge. If a tornado is coming, where are you going to go? Stand out in the middle of it? Are you going to try to fight it, get, get your umbrella, hold on for dear life? No, you're going to take refuge. You're going to find the lowest place to go, a place that's going to cover you. When the wicked come against you, where are you going to go? To the Lord, who is your refuge. Who is your refuge? Convicts me. I mean, just through, not even just persecution, but through any trial or anything that comes about. Maybe my kids get sick. Where do I go first? Honey, call the doctor. That's the first place where my mind goes. Shouldn't it go to the Lord first? I mean, not that we don't take our kids to the doctor. That'd be stupid, right? You know, but because God's given us doctors. But who do we go to first? Do we, do we freak out and think our only help is the doctor? Or do we think really our only help is the Lord? And I call upon the name of the Lord. And he does what he wants. He can either heal my child or he can use the doctor to heal him. But either way, it's from the Lord, so I should go to him first. It's like, really, I believe it's the Christian's way of taking the name of the Lord God in vain. We take his name, and we say we worship him, and we trust in him, but then when calamity happens, we go somewhere else instead. That's taking the name of the Lord in vain. Right? So my first thought should be to go to the Lord. When persecution arises, my first thought could either be, okay, take care of this myself, run away, or just offer it to the Lord. Say, Lord, you know what's going on. And to pray with David. So look at verse 1 again. O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. 
Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me, rending my soul in pieces while there is none to deliver. Who's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? Satan. The devil, right? Be sober, be vigilant. Right? 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith. He is prowling around. He is looking for someone he can devour. Someone who is far from the flock of God, far from the shepherd. Right? He's looking for someone who he can tantalize who he can grab their affections and lure them away. Me and my brother have been going fishing every once in a while. We're always looking for that one bait, right? That one lure that's going to get that four or five pound bass on the bank or in his boat. Right? I mean, we're going for the big ones. Like using big lures because we want a big fish. Not because we necessarily want to eat it, but so we can take pictures and put it on Facebook, you know? How vain is that? No, I'd eat it. Would you eat it? Yeah, Logan would eat it. He'll eat anything. But what do we use? We use something that's shiny to lure him into us. What is the devil using? What our affections want. Right? What our our hearts want. What our flesh desires. That's what he's using. He wants to devour you. He wants to kill you. He wants to crush you. He wants to destroy you. How many more cinnamons, cinnamons, synonyms can I use? He wants you. He, his desire is for you, to devour you, to eat you up. He doesn't want you praising the Lord. He doesn't want you seeking the Lord. He wants to kill you. And he is going to use shiny things for this. Things that you like. What does it say in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14? And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Whereas in okay, if the devil tempts me with something, it's going to be something um, malicious, malignant. Is that the right word? It's going to be something evil. But to us, it may look good. Right? Maybe it's a job, but it's not from the Lord. It's from the devil to, to, to take you away from the Lord. Maybe it's a friend. It could be anything. But he wants to lure you away from the Lord so that he can devour you, so he can devour your faith, so he can crush your heart for worship. So he can take you away from devotion to the Lord. He wants to devour you. John 10.10, the thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what Satan does. He wants to steal, he wants to kill, and he wants to destroy. He wants to steal your faith. He wants to rob you of your relationship with the Lord. He wants to kill you. 
He wants to destroy your family. Are you fighting back? Are you clinging to the Lord? Are you going to him for refuge? I mean, think about it. Satan wants to destroy your family, so what should you do? I'll tell you what you should do. You should worship the Lord together as a family. Every day that you can, make a habit out of it. Every day that you can. I gave the men in here a a book um, about family worship and stuff. Are you worshiping as a family? Are you worshiping as a couple? Are you taking your kids and are you pouring God's word into them? Because the devil wants to kill them. I mean, literally, he wants to kill our children. Are we going, are we fighting against that? Are we clinging to the Lord? Are we praying for them and leading them in prayer? Are we taking them before the Lord? We must. We must. In the days of the Puritans, if you were, you know, they had a membership within the church and stuff like that. If you were not leading your family in family devotions, they would come to you and tell you to repent they wouldn't allow you to take the Lord's Supper because you're, con- you're walking contrary to the Lord's will in unrepentance, right? And they would, they would come back again and check on you. Have you repented of this? It is sin to not guard our families like that, and especially for us men, to not lead our families in worship. I wish I had, you know, Nick and Priscilla's talent family worship would be a lot easier. <laughs> you know, but we can just take, I mean, fortunately my wife can sing okay, but she even tells me, you know, it's just really hard to keep a tune with you. It's like, yeah, I know, but you know what? We're just going to have to do it anyways. <laughs> but we must do that. But for David here in this psalm, men are actually hunting him down. The enemy has sent men to hunt him down, whether it's Saul or Absalom or whoever it is. I, I tend to think that this is maybe during the time of Saul, just because of what is said later. But he says, verse 3, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid him, repaid evil to him who is at peace with me, or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. And then he adds, Selah. All right, stop and meditate on this. And also look for the Lord to show up, okay? You could look for it if you want right now. Look where he's going to go next in verse 6. Arise, O Lord, right? But look how he prays. He's being persecuted. He's being hunted down. Lord, okay, if I'm, if I'm guilty of this, then let the enemy overtake me. If I'm to blame in this for any reason, then I'm going to get what I deserve, and I should get what I deserve. But Lord, if I am innocent, don't let them overtake me, right? I mean, just think what's probably going on. David may be being accused of treason against Saul. 
of wanting to take over the kingdom for himself. And Saul's hunting him down to kill him. But David knows he's not at fault, right? David was blameless. He was blameless. Twice he could have killed Saul and taken the kingdom for himself. And he was the anointed king over Israel because Samuel, the priest, had anointed him as king over Israel. And so David had a choice. Either I can take this into my own hands. I'm the Lord's anointed. He's not anymore, so I'm going to go kill him. I'm going to take over the kingdom. I'll take it for myself. Or he could wait for the Lord to hand it over to him, which is what he did. He waited for the Lord to hand it over to him. He didn't take it on his own. And then those two times he could have killed Saul, what did he say to his mighty men, to, to Joab? said, how dare I raise my hand against the Lord's anointed? He would not do that. He even repented after cutting off a piece of Saul's tassel in the cave when Saul was using the facilities. Right? He was going to the bathroom. Saul didn't know David was there in the cave. David comes up behind him, sneaks, cuts off a piece of his, his garment and kind of retreats back into the cave. When Saul's leaving, he says, isn't this my king's? I have, I'm not here to take over your kingdom. I'm not here to commit treason. I have been your servant, he tells him. I have been your loyal servant. You are hunting me down like a dog. So David's innocent. And so when we're persecuted, we have to ask ourselves, is it because of ourselves or is it because we hold to the truth? Do we lose that job or get fired or whatever it is because of our performance and our integrity was lacking? Or is it because we are walking in the truth? When somebody hates us and reviles us, is it because of us? Or is it because of their hatred of God? Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. So all the way near the end of your Bibles. We'll start in verse 18 just for context's sake. First Peter chapter 2, verse 18. And it says, servants, literally it's doulos in Greek, slaves. Slaves, be submissive to your own masters with all fear. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? So you're beaten because that's what you deserve. You take it patiently. There's no credit to you for that. You're, you're just getting what you deserve. But when you do good and suffer if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges 
righteously. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. And we see the same thing with David. He commits himself when Shimei is slandering him, telling him he's a man of blood, he's guilty of treason. When he's calling him a rogue, a worthless man, David says, perhaps the Lord sent him to revile me. And so I'm not going to speak against him, I'm not going to threaten him, I'm not going to harm him. Right? When somebody's threatening you, persecuting you, how do you respond? Maybe this hasn't happened to you yet. But Jesus said, all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. If you desire to live godly in Christ, you will. It's a promise that you will suffer persecution. And you're all like, hang on to that promise. Amen, right? No, that's not one of the promises we try to hold on to, but it is a promise. And you know, if we're not suffering persecution, are we living godly in Christ? That's somewhere where you should examine yourself. I pray I get persecuted. Not because I want to get persecuted, because I want to know I'm living godly in Christ. That is a pretty good sign that you're doing what God wants you to do, and you're doing what the enemy hates. And if the enemy is not coming against you, are you really walking in the Lord's will? Are you really walking in faith? Do you realize you can come here, you can study your Bible, you can do your devotions, and you cannot walk in faith all at the same time? Do you realize that? Do you realize you can do everything religiously and not walk in faith? If you're only reading your Bible, and you're not putting it into practice, you're not walking in faith, you're just a religious person. And we need to repent. We should be walking in faith, advancing the kingdom of heaven. And that faith may look different at different times. But examine yourself. Is your life one of faith? Are you walking in faith? Does faith define your relationship with God? Does it define your service to God? Verse 6. So this is how, after David examines himself, okay, if there's any fault in me, let it happen. If there's no fault in me, here's what he says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. So the congregation of the people shall surround you. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. So it's like, David's saying, and I think it's the ESV, instead of rise up the second time in verse 6, he says, awake. Awake to the judgment you have commanded. And he is setting forth a picture of judgment. Return on high. Return on your judgment throne is what he's saying. Return on your judgment throne. O Lord, in your anger... Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Awake. Have you ever prayed that? And does the Lord sleep or slumber? 
No, in Psalm 121, it says he does not sleep or slumber. Right? But he's praying to him like he does. Because sometimes it feels like he is. Sometimes it feels like God is just not acting. He's not, he's not active. I pray all the time. Lord. And I, I, I'm very careful, okay? Because I don't want to blaspheme the Lord or say something that's going to offend him. But it's like, Lord, take your hands out of your pockets. Stop just watching. Act. Save people. Save the drunkard. Save the sexually immoral person. Save the drug addict. Save the homeless person who keeps coming here, coming to the park. Save them, Lord. Save them. Return. Send your spirit. Convict their hearts. Open up the eyes of their understanding. Lord, act. Act. And we plead with him and plead with him to act and to move. We read about revivals that have happened in history. We read in in the Bible how God comes down by his spirit and convicts hearts or moves or gives Israel victory over their enemies or converts 3,000 people in one day. Lord, why won't you do it now? I want to know why. Are you just giving us over to our depravity? If so, then amen. So let it be. If that is by your infinite wisdom, your perfect knowledge of where we're going to go, then yes, give us over. But Lord, please have mercy at the same time. Please have mercy and save some. Save many. Lord, we're still alive. There's still a chance that we could be redeemed to you. We pray this. We should be praying like that. Praying just as David does. Lord, wake up. Please come to our aid. Come to our rescue. You're our salvation. We have none other. Lord, help. You're our only hope. And yes, I did get that phrase from Star Wars. I just realized it as I said mm-hmm. it. Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're our only hope, right? And then he adds, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to the integrity within me. Can we pray that? Can I pray that? Lord, judge me according to my righteousness and according to the integrity within me. So first off, the Lord is our righteousness, right? I have no righteousness apart from the Lord in God's eyes. I am wicked. I am evil. He's imputed his righteousness to me. But since he's imputed his righteousness to me, he's given me his Holy Spirit, he's given me his word, do I live according to that? Do I live according to the dictates of my own heart, which are unrighteous, or do I live according to the dictates of his heart and his word, which are righteous? That's integrity. That's righteousness. Am I living according to that? Lord, judge me according to that. Do we live according to what God says is right and good? That's what it means. Lord, judge me according to that. Judge me according to um, my walk. Here on earth. Am I loving you? Am I loving my neighbor? Right? And then he says, verse 9, 
Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end. And notice there he's not praying against the wicked. Let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end. And that could come through repentance. It could come through God's judgment. Right? Either way. We pray for repentance for people, not for judgment. And we trust God to judge when he sees fit at the same time. So, oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end. But establish the just, for the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. Notice it's the Lord who decides, not us. Right? Who's just and who's wicked. I mean, we do judge, we see wickedness. We know what, what wickedness looks like. But it's the Lord who tests the hearts and minds. But here's one thing I've seen and I've heard people say over and over again, oh, the Lord knows my heart. As they're doing something that's less than righteous, and they say, oh, the Lord knows my heart. <laughs> yeah, we sometimes don't always know our heart. But what we do by saying that is we dim the lights on God's word. It's like we're putting a blanket over his word and saying, well, the Lord knows my heart. I can do this or that, watch this movie or that. I can, you know when it really hit me? I was doing a funeral for my, I was, well, I was part of a funeral for my grandfather. I was at a Catholic church and there was another pastor there. And uh, the lady who was kind of showing us what we were supposed to do said, what you need to do is come up, you need to bow to the altar. And I'm thinking, uh, I don't think I'm going to bow to the altar. I bow to the Lord Jesus Christ, not to some altar. Right? Not to some false idea of who God is or anything like that. I'm not going to bow to that. I'll bow to the Lord. And so I mentioned it to the other pastor who was a Protestant. And he says, he says, well, I'll probably bow to it, but the Lord knows my heart. Yeah, and your heart's wicked. He knows my heart too, and it's wicked. And so I'm going to live according to what his word says, not according to what people want me to do or making people comfortable. I'm not going to dim the light of God's word. Let it shine. Right? Let it blast forth in blinding light. I mean, we don't want to be obnoxious or anything like that. I just walked right up there and read my passage and then walked down. You know, I didn't go up there and kick the altar over. That would have been cool, though, but I didn't. No, it wouldn't have been cool. It would have been very disrespectful, I guess, but Martin Luther probably would have. But we're not to hide God's word, right? That's not something we should do. We obey it, and if the Lord knows our hearts, that's a scary thing. We should tremble before that. We should tremble. He knows my heart. He knows the desires of my heart. He knows that I desire other things than doing what's right in his eyes. So we should tremble and say, Lord, I don't want to bow to that. I want to bow to you. I want to bow to you. 
Verse 10, my defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. It's the heart that looks to the Lord that he saves. Right? That looks to the cross, that looks to Jesus Christ because he died for us. Verse 11, God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. So God is angry every day. Every day at the wicked, he is angry. Every day, he has reason to judge mankind. Every single day. There's not a day that goes by that God is not angry with the wicked. And if it says if he does not turn back, that is if that person does not repent, right? If he does not begin to seek the Lord, to trust in him, to call upon the name of Jesus Christ. If he does not trust the Lord, then what's going to happen? The sword is going to come down. Execution is going to happen. If you do not repent, that's what's going to happen. Just imagine. His sword is raised. It says he, he sharpens his sword. He bends his bow. He makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. That is, he lights his arrows on fire. And you just have to wonder, okay, is God's sword risen up against me? Could it come down at any moment? Could he let loose his fiery darts at any moment to destroy us, to kill us, to, to end us? That we would never, ever have any joy, have any hope ever again. I talked to a lady this week at my work, and I was witnessing, and I witnessed to her, and I witnessed to her, and I'm pleading with her to turn to the Lord. She could die any day. You know, where I work, there's somebody's always on the brink of death, or they're dying, one or the other. And I'm pleading with her, and I brought up this verse, God is angry with the wicked every day. And I told her, in my eyes, you're, you're a good person, but according to God's eyes and what he says, you are not. And he is good, and he is the only righteous one. He is perfect. And he's angry with you. He's angry with you because you're calling him a liar. And you won't submit to the gospel. You won't submit to his word. And she thought she, she still thinks that she can just be a good person. She says, it's really hard for people our age. Uh, yeah, it's hard for everybody because we're prideful. We do want to be good. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he's talking about the judgment that's to come, that fiery judgment that's going to burn everything. Right? And then he says this in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So he is. He's holding his sword up, and he has not let it go yet. And some of us, maybe even here, 
If you're a Christian, you know you're a Christian, you're a believer, you're walking with the Lord, and you can say, I know his wrath has been turned away from me by Jesus Christ. Then take this as a way to evangelize, as a way to proclaim the gospel. But if you are an unbeliever, if you know that you just haven't grasped onto the Lord yet, if you are not believing him, not submitted to him, not walking with him, you should fear. He could let down his sword at any moment, at any moment, and cast you into hell for all of eternity. He could let his fiery arrows go, and you're done for. All hope is gone. All hope is gone. But the awesome truth of the gospel is even though God's angry with us every day, he sent his son to die for us. How great is the love of God that he would send his son to die for those who sin against him, who are in rebellion against him, who are committing treason against him. And so, yes, God did let go his fiery arrows and he brought down the sword and I hid behind his son and the son took it for me. How awesome is that? I'm hidden in Christ. He suffered the wrath of God for me. But if you say, well, I'm a good person and I can go before God on my goodness, it's going to be a, such a sad day for you. It's going to be a horrible day for you. When you are brought before the Lord and you are made to bow before him, I picture it as, you know, being brought before the Lord by two mighty angels and being brought and put into the dust of the earth with their foot on your back, holding you down so that you would bow, but you wouldn't even want to get up anyways because then you'd have to face the lamb. You'd have to face your judge. And then he says, you're guilty of all things. You're, guilt, you're guilty of breaking the entirety of the law. You are guilty as a drunkard. You are guilty as sexually immoral. You're guilty as a murderer. You are guilty as an adulterer. You are guilty as a blasphemer of God. And you are guilty of shunning and rejecting God's righteousness in Jesus Christ. You are guilty of refusing his gift. And he says, away with you you worker of lawlessness, into the everlasting fire that I have prepared for the devil and his angels. How horrible will that day be? How terrifying will that day be? And to go through all of eternity knowing that there's not a speck, not a glimmer of hope. That's why it's so important that you repent now. When you guys are giving the gospel to people, plead with them. Plead with them. I get caught in the stupidity of trying to be nice when I'm witnessing. And I guess I should be nice because I don't want them to just run away because of me, right? But give them the truth. Give them that truth. God is angry with you. His sword is risen up against you. And it is going to come down across the back of your neck. 
except you're not going to die. You will just experience torment forever and ever. And put away your false ideas of God. Put them away. Your false ideas of what God is like or what's going to come, believe him at his word. Jonathan Edwards, maybe some of you have read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He wrote this. He said, God has laid himself under no obligation by any promise to keep any natural man out of hell for one moment. God certainly has made no promise either of eternal life or of any deliverance or preservation from eternal death, but what are contained in the covenant of grace. The promises that are given in Christ, in whom all the promises are yes and amen. So outside of Christ, there is no promise for you. There is no salvation for you. There is no guarantee for you outside of him. And then Psalm 7, verse 14, it says this, Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. And I like the ESV rendering of this much better. It says, and it's, I believe it's much more accurate, and it's what the, uh, the Hebrew conveys. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. So you see the progression, you know, conception, pregnancy, and then birth brings forth lies. He made a pit and dug it out and has fallen to the ditch which he has made. His trouble shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. The picture of, is, here is of someone setting a trap and then falling into it. You dig a hole, you put some spikes down at the bottom of it, you're waiting for a bear or a lion or you know, something to come across and fall at it, or you're waiting for your adversary to fall into it, but you're wicked and you're, you're, you're setting a trap for somebody who's innocent, and then you fall into it yourself. That's the picture. They dig a trap, but they fall into it themselves. Or they throw a huge stone up in the air to try to crush you, but it falls right back down on themselves. It reminded me of, um, has anybody seen that video of that, that girl who's got that big slingshot? It's, it's been going around on Facebook for the last couple of years, and she pulls it back, and then she lets it go, and it goes flips around and shoots the watermelon right back in her face. Have you guys seen that? So she takes the watermelon, puts it in this huge slingshot. It was like some kind of uh, Renaissance festival thing or something like that. And it flings around and shoots her right in the face. That's what the wicked is like. Their own wickedness destroys themselves. Right? Think of Haman in the book of Esther. Haman was the enemy of the Jews. Right? He hated Mordecai, the Jew. And he had set up gallows at his house. So, I mean, just imagine, you're like in your front yard, you have these gallows. Gallows is what you use to hang somebody on. And they're 50 cubits high, which a cubit is 18 inches, right? From the tip of your finger to the tip of your elbow. So, more than a foot, 18 inches high. Um, but 50 of those. Okay, so I don't know what that would convert to. 75 feet? Oh, good job. That was quick. Nice. So 75 feet high are these gallows, and he sticks them, just imagine, in, in his front yard. 
and he's going to hang Mordecai the Jew on it. But what happens is God and his um, providence has Esther, who's also a Jew, comes before the king, and she tells him what this wicked Haman is going to do. And then the king has Haman hanged on his own gallows, and Mordecai is given a greater position than even Haman had, a second in all the kingdom. That's what it's like to be wicked. To have your wickedness fall upon yourself. Or think of Judas Iscariot. Judas, who betrayed Jesus Christ, who told him, the the Jews, where he would be so they could go and arrest him and have him crucified. And where is he now? He has also fallen into a pit. It's a pit of destruction. He is the son of perdition, son of destruction. And he is there to this day while Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God and has all glory and power and majesty and authority. So that's what the the wicked are like. That's what happens to them. Then verse 17, last verse, it says, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. And that's the dividing line right there between the wicked and the righteous. The wicked worships themselves or worships some false god. The righteous will praise Yahweh most high, according to his righteousness, according to his truth. What did Jesus say? He said, those who worship God will worship him in spirit. And a lot of people like to stop there. And then it says, and truth. If you want to worship the Lord, you have to worship him in spirit and in truth. To worship him in spirit, you have to receive a new spirit. You have to be born again. And to worship him in truth means You have to worship him from what is revealed in this, in his word. If you worship a God whom you don't know, you're not worshiping the true God. If you're worshiping a God whom you've made up in your own imagination, you are not worshiping the true God. If you are worshiping the God of popularity in America, the God of Joel Olstein, of the TV preachers, you're not worshiping the true God. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. The name of the Lord Most High. What does that mean? The Lord Most High, the one who created all things, the one who is above all things, right? who has authority over all things. Jesus has all authority. He is the Lord Most High. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so he does have the right to come and judge. He has that right. So don't think for a moment that that judgment will delay. Don't think for a moment that he will allow you to live another day. Repent now. Because today is the day of salvation, right? And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved will be saved. So put your faith in him. So what do we take away from this? One, if you're being persecuted, where do you go? 
to the Lord, right? He's your refuge. He's your strength. He's your, the one you're supposed to trust in. Not take revenge for yourself. Two, to be blameless. Right? You don't want people to persecute you because of you. You want them to persecute you. Be, well, you don't want them to persecute you at all. But if they're going to persecute you, let them persecute you because of the truth of the Lord. Because of who he is. Three, just call upon him. Where he says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Lord, be my defense. Is your life one of prayer? That's the way you show the Lord that you trust him. By praying to him and obedience. Right? If I trust him, I'm going to obey him. If I trust him, I'm going to go to him rather than to the counsels of this world. Not Dr. Phil, not anything else. And remember, there is a day when he's going to judge. Okay, remember that day is coming. So don't take vengeance for yourself. Say in Romans, leave room for wrath. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name, according to Exodus. Right? And if you're going to evangelize, if you're going to tell people about the Lord, explain to them the gospel, don't hold back. Call sin what it is. Don't tell somebody they're an alcoholic. Tell them they're a drunkard. If they're living in sexual immorality, call them an adulterer. If they're guilty of abortion, call them a murderer. If they tell lies, call them a liar. Those are just some of the things. And then show them the great love of God. Show them that Jesus Christ has taken the arrows, the sword, for them. Because we're all in the same boat. Every single person here has been a drunkard, a liar, a murderer, right? an adulterer. Nobody's better than the other. Every single one of us is guilty before God. And every mouth must be shut before him. But show the greatness of the love of God to that person. Okay, show them the greatness. Plead with them. I loved, on Wednesday night, Nick was preaching. And at first I was like, okay, I get it, it's grace. You know, and he just kept hammering it and hammering it and hammering it. And then he hammered it some more. Right? But there were people there who didn't understand. He was pleading with them. He was showing the great grace of our God. That's not something you can preach enough. That's not something you can preach enough. That is the only thing that will fix your neighbors. That's the only thing that will fix your coworkers. Right? is the great love of God. And we are to show them that, to preach that to them, to love on them with the word. Amen? Let's pray. Mm -hmm.
So, Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray that these psalms that we go over would be the prayers of our hearts. Lord, when it's the proper time for prayers like these. And Lord, your psalms cover all of those times. I pray that you'd build into us your word as we go through these. And Lord, we draw us into a deeper and closer relationship with who you are, with yourself. And Lord, I pray again that if there's anybody here who has not repented and turned to you, that they would. Lord, you would open up their understanding. You would open up their hearts to show them their great need for you. And you would save them, Lord. That they would feel the guilt of their sins, the hopelessness that comes from themselves, but the great hope that comes only from you. We pray this in Jesus' precious, saving name. Amen.